Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Juice and the Squeeze, a zesty podcast by two academics about where, how, and why we focus our efforts. I'm Julia Strand, here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Julia. I have to say, after that introduction, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on us to actually uh, produce some good content here. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried that maybe you set the bar too high. Hey, gang, what's up? We're going to talk. You should come and listen. Is that <laughs> right. better? Yes, You can exactly. use that one if you prefer. I can do that, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, edit that in later. Perfect. Okay. How you doing? Good. We started classes this week, uh, so mm -hmm. back to teaching for me. I'm teaching cognitive neuroscience, um, and so far, the first two classes have gone very well, and partly because I was able to use my lectures from last time I taught. So mm -hmm. that has helped a lot. We... Uh... Uh, at Carleton, we're on the trimester system, and so this is the, the lovely time of year where I hear everybody else going back to classes, but I still have another another two weeks to get my decks in a row. And to uh, rub it in. That's apparently. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Although, <laughs> although when we talk in May and uh, you're done and I'm not. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what they say about payback. <laughs> so what should we talk about today? Well, we kind of had this idea. That uh, something that, that, that might be nice to cover, and especially early on, uh, is to talk about the idea of winding roads in, in life and in careers. The inspiration for this topic, um, or at least what made me particularly excited about this topic, came from a conversation that I had with a student of mine last year. And as we were talking about my academic journey and uh, uh, the steps that I've kind of taken to get to my career, um, it became clear that she was surprised that I did not start off life knowing that I wanted to be a college professor in a psychology department at a small liberal arts college, um, that, I, that I didn't always know what I wanted to do. Shocking. I know. Did, did you always know what you wanted to do? <laughs> no, I had no idea. Uh, no, I had no idea about um, most aspects of what my current job is. Hmm? There was no, there was no book, uh, or at least I never read a book when I was a kid that was sort of like, you know, a day in the life of a college professor doing psychology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and especially not a, so you want to be a college professor doing psychology. Here's the path that you must follow to get there. Right. Right. So actually, I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. And um, so I, a little, I still have the sense a little bit that many of my colleagues had a very straightforward path to where they are now, mm -hmm. um, which which may or may not be true. But it's interesting that I think most of the people I've talked to, I, I think don't, and actually asked this question, I think actually don't have a straightforward path. So something that's interesting to me is sort of the, the um, juxtaposition between my assumptions that everyone always knew what they were doing and had it all planned out. Mm -hmm. And then what seems like the reality, which is certainly a lot of people do not at all. Mm -hmm. And And it's probably a combination of multiple things, right? Like it's a really nice narrative to have ever since I was five, I'd have known that I wanted to dot, dot, dot. Um, and we love seeing pictures of people, you know, playing with their toy science kit when they're kids and then say, look, and now I'm a scientist. Um, so I think that's like a, a really pleasant narrative, which is maybe one of the reasons that, that we tell it and it gets perpetuated, even if it's not super commonly true. Yeah. What was your path towards where you are now? Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, a little bit winding, actually. Um, 
so I, um, when I started college, uh, wanted to be a brain surgeon. I think actually I wanted to be a thing that I was calling a cognitive neurosurgeon, which I don't even know if that's a thing. I, don't, I think I don't you made know. it up. I like how I it sounds I, though. I think yeah. I did well. And I think, you know, 16 year old me did too. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to be a brain surgeon, and then I got to college. I went to Tufts University and took intro bio my first term of my first year and failed the first two tests really dismally and uh, felt very terrible about it and my potential future prospects um, and, you know, started decided I shouldn't be pre-med, decided I shouldn't go to med school, that that future was, you know, closed off to me. Um, and Started taking other classes, ended up with a English uh, and psychology double major, then finished college and didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. So I moved in with my brother and bartended in a costume for a couple of years. <laughs> what, what, um, pardon me? Uh, what, <laughs> what costume did you have? It was a, it was a, a like a German bar. So I had like an Oktoberfest costume. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. So, you know, uh <laughs> Remember, gentle listener, if you want to be a psychology professor, the only path to take. <laughs> right. um, and then got kind of intellectually bored I, uh, and decided I should go to grad school and, you know, figured I had majored in psychology, so I should go to grad school for that. Um, but then midway into my Ph.D. program was kind of disheartened with the, the process of research and my ability to do it and decided to quit grad school. Um, and then was and then was talked out of it, but decided I was definitely going to leave academia as soon as grad school was over, and I wanted to go run a science museum. It's like all I want to do is like make people excited about science. That's what I want to do for my life. So then I finished grad school and I got this offer to do a, a really exciting uh, postdoctoral fellowship, and I said, okay, I'm going to do the postdoc, and then I'm going to quit academia and go, you know, work in a science museum, and then. I liked the postdoc and I got to do some teaching and I liked teaching and I, I realized that there are multiple ways to make people excited about science and one of them is being a professor. And so then I started applying for faculty jobs, but at that point hadn't really had enough teaching experience to land a tenure track faculty job. So got a visiting professorship um, at Carleton and then was lucky enough that a tenure track position got posted pretty soon afterwards that I was that I was able to apply for. So really at every step I was convinced that I was going to quit academia after that step. And now I am in what I is just my dream job and I wouldn't wouldn't want to do anything else. Well, I was I was going to ask and I um I didn't have to. So I was going to ask if you're like happy where you are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I don't think that I probably took the straightest route to get here, but this is definitely like I, I want this to be the last job I ever have. I love it here. What another thing I really liked about your story is it sounds like you had people um, like who encouraged you at all these different steps, or or maybe I don't know if I don't know how if you would phrase it as encouragement or like you know kind of forcing you to stay in just a little bit longer, mm -hmm. or, or convincing you, maybe cajoling, <laughs> convincing. Yeah, I, uh, I um, the conversation that I had in grad school with one of my faculty members then, Martha Sturant, um, was one of those like really, uh, you know, a 15-minute conversation that definitely like changed the course of my life. Because I went into her office being like, 
it's time to quit grad school. I don't like it. And, you know, when I walked out, she was like, yeah, fine. But, you know, just stick it out a couple more years. You're almost done. And then you'll have a PhD. So you can still do whatever you want in Renaissance Museum. But, you know, then you'll have a PhD and that might open some doors for you. Uh, and so that was definitely, um, she was a great source of kind of support and help and certainly influenced the the direction that I took. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I guess it's, uh, I mean, it's really neat too, that just her one little, maybe not entirely offhanded, but she may have not realized sort of the, you know, the big impact that that encouragement oh. had on you. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely don't think that she did. I mean, and, and it was very logical. She was like, what are you going to do next term instead? And I was like, oh, I don't really have a plan. She's like, okay, well, just stay in grad school a little longer and figure out your plan. Uh, and it was it was very kind of logical. I don't know. It was a, it was a great argument. Um, she was in the acknowledgments of my dissertation, and then I wrote her a letter years later being like, I don't know if you even remember this conversation, but you really changed my life, and I'm very happy in my career now. So thanks for that. Yeah, that's um, that's very cool. I, I also wonder, do, was part of your evolving trajectory sort of, uh, it sounds like part of it was just learning about other career options mm -hmm, that you mm -hmm. didn't necessarily have to be a research professor at a big research university to do mm -hmm. what you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that I, when I was in grad school, the only college professors that I, you know, knew and was close with were the faculty that I had at Washington University in St. Louis, um, who are have a have a very different job. I mean, and you, Jonathan, as a professor there, have a very different job than I have at a small liberal arts college. Even though our job titles are are really similar, um, so yeah, I think a a, a lot of a, a big part of it was just learning that there are even different kinds of this this one job. So let me tell you about my uh, not straight path because that actually Please. plays into it a little bit. Uh, so I started off. Uh, college as a music major. I was a French horn player. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents are both musicians. You, and you they, know, I'm going to make you play French horn on the podcast at some point, right? Someday. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. Um, my parents are both musicians. And so I loved playing, but they, they knew a lot of musicians who were, you know, in their 40s and, and 50s and sort of unhappy um, you know, people who love music, but but also loved having health insurance and a steady <laughs> job and things like that. And so they always uh, encouraged me to um, encourage me slash forced me to uh, at least have other options. So they never really forbade me to do music. They encouraged it, but they sort of said, you have to have a second a second option or a second major. And, uh, and so that seemed fine to me. But I spent most of my time doing music stuff because um, a lot of times, uh, certainly for me, if you're a music major, you have a really heavy course load and lots of ensembles and, you know, practicing hours per day and so on. So that was really my whole life. And so I didn't have a lot of interest or mental capacity to kind of figure out what my other job would be. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I took intro to psych and it was, you know, it was, I enjoyed it. And I thought, well, psychology is good. Uh, and partly because I didn't have to pick, right? There, there's lots and lots of jobs you can do. Uh, with a quote unquote psych major. Um, so then I, so I said, this, this will be a good major and I can figure it out later. Um, and I ended up, you know, having a wide range of, of psych courses, you know, personality and development and, you know, some experimental method stuff. Um, and it wasn't until the very end of my undergraduate uh, career that I took, um, it wasn't even a cognitive psychology class. It was just an experimental class, but it was focused on uh, there's a lot of cognitive psychology and especially a lot of memory studies that we learned about. 
And so that really piqued my interest um, in terms of sort of what we could learn about the mind or the brain through through research. I had no research experience whatsoever apart from like the class research project that we we had to do for class. Uh, and it was actually at this point, um, I was like thinking about graduate school. I took a year off and I was really on the fence between doing some kind of counseling or therapy. I enjoyed talking to people and, you know, seemed like a good opportunity to kind of help people in a general sense uh, and like an academic path, which I really knew nothing about apart from my professors who were at a smaller art school. Um, and uh, I was really, I couldn't decide. So what I did, and we, you know, we had the internet, this would be back in 1999, um, but we also read books back then. And so I ordered the, the American Psychological Association, the APA had a book that was called something like Choosing Your Path. And it had some arrows on the front. And uh, every chapter was written by a practicing psychologist. And they just sort of talked about their day or their week or, you know, kind of a typical, typical day in their career. So okay. I read the uh, therapist chapter and, and I thought, oh, this is boring. And then I flipped through and I read the professor chapter and I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. I could do that. So um, my narrative, which I'm I'm sure is not true, like probably I had really kind of decided ahead of time or whatever. But but in my mind, I, I basically pick up the book for half an hour, read it, put, you know, read the two chapters, put it down and was decided um, to go into academic psychology. Um, but and you'd think that would be a straight path. But then I, I had no idea what that really meant. I knew that I had taken a memory course, which I liked. So I, when I applied to graduate school in my letters, I, I said, I want to study memory or whatever. And so then, you know, I, I would meet with people who did memory. Mm-hmm. The day, my memory, again, which is wrong, but my memory is the day before I sent off my applications, uh, my um, wife's family in passing said, oh, have you considered Brandeis University. Uh, that's near Boston. Uh, they all live near Boston. And so I had not actually heard of Brandeis. If anyone from Brandeis is listening, don't spread this around. I had not heard of it. Um, but I, I said, well, why not? You know, what, what harm could it do to apply a different place? Um, you know, fast forward. So I show up there. I had a, really enjoyed my interview, liked the university, liked um, Art Wingfield, who, whose lab I ended up working in. Um, but I, I had no research experience, and he also did not really study memory so much as speech and language. So at that point, I had already switched the, you know, I'd added this university to my list. I met Art, and I said, I just want to do what he does. And so then I switched my focus to something totally different that I had uh, never had any experience with speech or language or aging. And those are all the main things I, I'm working on now. Uh, and then sort of... Um, yeah, all of a sudden found myself in a PhD program uh, doing all these new things. After I showed up, uh, it I came in through psychology, but I switched to the neuroscience program. So I kind of restarted with neuroscience coursework and learning about kind of the biology of the brain. And that put me on a path of doing um, brain imaging for postdoctoral fellowships and so on. Uh, and then uh, during the big job search year, which is, I guess that can be another topic we should talk about more. But then I mm-hmm. ended up, uh, you know, getting a job in the Department of Otolaryngology, um, which is not, was never on my radar, never part of any plan of mine whatsoever. Uh, and it's worked out great. And there's lots of things I really like about my job, but it actually feels like 
pretty much at every step of the way, uh, whatever plans I had uh, did not happen. <laughs> and uh, a, a theme that I'm sensing is is the role of chance yeah. in a lot of these decisions. Yeah, very much. And I think, well, there's that saying, uh, the older I get, the more that I Sorry, this is not the saying. This is me talking. Uh, the older I get, the more that I think a lot of cliches and things I used to roll my eyes at are actually pretty true. Uh, and so one of them, um, which may or may not actually be true, but chance favors the prepared. Um, and so I think in a lot of these situations, it felt like things worked out very randomly or, or through no effort of my own. But then I also... I do wonder if I had not been of the mindset of looking for opportunities or sort of actively engaged in the process, then, then things wouldn't have happened. Sure. Um, it's sort of like distinguishing, you know, there, there is a whole other topic we should talk about of kind of survivorship bias that um, sort of it's easy to attribute things that really are random chance or luck to our own effort. And so yep. hopefully I'm not doing that, but I just, I do feel like being engaged in the process set me up to take advantage of the the good luck that happened. Sure. I, I believe that. And was also thinking a lot about, about survivorship, <clears throat> survivorship bias as I was thinking about this episode. Um, and, and, and also the idea that although I really believe in this narrative that successful people don't always know exactly where they're going, um, that there's also a really important point to make um, that, that people who have greater privilege broadly construed, I mean, uh, taken in lots of different ways, um, have much more flexibility to to take a winding road. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I think, that, that greater privilege <laughs> buys you a more scenic journey uh, <laughs> on your way uh, yeah. along your road. Um, there, was a, there was a tweet that I read last week that I uh, really liked and wanted to be sure to include as we were thinking about this episode. Um by, oh, sorry, let me pull this up here, um, by Regini Rao, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins. Um, and she said, I get that anecdotes about failing classes in school, but still ending up as successful faculty can be inspiring to some. But for immigrants, especially people of color, falling up is not an option. We have to ace every test and outperform our peers just to get a seat at the table. Um, and I think that that is a, 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 an interesting and important and, and, and true um, perspective to, to, to bring into this discussion that, you know, when I think about the times that things weren't going well for me in school or I was failing tests or, you know, I was uh, uh, struggling with decisions about what I was going to do, I did have a lot of people around who were academics or had experience with this, um, uh, who had my back and were supportive and encouraging. Um, and And that is a tremendous privilege that, you know, that certainly helped me along my way. Yeah. No, I think that's a really excellent point. Yeah. And I think there's also sort of the accumulation of advantage also that once you make it to a certain point. So you know, for, so if for me, once I was in a, a graduate program, a PhD, then I had some options about doing neuroscience or psychology or taking some extra time. But because I was in that place already, I, yeah, I had the time to, I had the the freedom to sort of explore that way that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people don't have. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a really important point. Returning to this, uh, the question about, about luck and how much luck, uh, you know, af- affects where we end up and how we end up. Um, and if we think about the survivorship bias, um, 
which, sorry, maybe we should say uh, for those who aren't familiar with the concept, um, survivorship bias is um, when you focus on um, people or things uh, that made it through some kind of vetting process without considering those that didn't make it through the process. Um, so the, the classic example of this um, is, uh, uh, okay, in, in World War II, um, researchers were looking at the, the airplanes that would go out and get shot at. Uh, and when they come back, the researchers were, were noticing um, where they tended to have the most bullet holes and say, okay, the planes are getting hit a lot in the wings and tails which are airplane parts, I hope. Um, and they said, so we have to we have to selectively armor those spots because that's where they're getting hit. Um, and uh, uh, but um, this uh, Abraham Wald realized that although that's the case, if you're if you're only uh, looking at the planes that that come back, you're only getting data about the planes that survive these battles. Um, and so the locations that the planes get hit that lead them to not come back, like let's say the engines, um, that's what you want to armor. So so his idea is that you should armor the areas that weren't damaged on the returning planes because they're representing the areas that if they get hit means that the plane goes down. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, you know, here we are saying, oh, we had these winding roads, but we still ended up with academic jobs. Um, it might not be good career advice to go and bartend in a dirndl instead of like going to work in a lab and actually getting research experience. Um, because until we go and <laughs> look at all the people who have bartended in, dir in dirndls and then seen if they go into academia, it's not clear if, if, if I'm representative here. Right. Um, and so when we, when we're talking about like this kind of survivorship bias, when we're talking about like career advice in general, right. You'd like talk to musicians or professional athletes or, CEOs or whatever, and they say, oh, you're so successful, and what's your secret? And they say, um, because I work hard and I believe in myself. Um, but in fact, tons of people work hard and believe in themselves and, right. and don't end up in those positions. And I think so much of it has to do with luck and random chance and, you know, factors factors beyond their control. Yeah, I totally agree. I um, Another topic that would be maybe interesting for another time that's related though, is sort of like, um, I don't know, does it, does it help one? Does it help me right now to think that, that working hard pays off or, or, mm -hmm. or, or would it help me more to believe in random chance? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like for grant writing, for example, which is something I do a lot of, um, and in real life, I think that there is, you know, there's, there's certainly some chance and then there, I think you, you do have to work a little bit too. So it's probably both, but like, what's the more, um, yeah, helpful outlook just from a practical perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I don't know what the right answer to that is because if I think it's all my work, then I might get stressed out if I fail. Uh, but then I put in some work. Whereas if I think it's all random chance, I might sort of stop working because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, uh, you could, you could, use the self-serving bias. And when things go well for you, assume it's because of your own hard work. And when things go badly, it's because, you know, luck and random chance and things outside your control. Oh, that's definitely not, true. Both of those not, are true. The, Thank the you. The most healthy way of doing <laughs> Thank it. You. But, yeah. Uh, you know, could, could be in some <laughs> we'll, we'll, cases, yeah. we'll, we'll circle back to this in a while. Just a little, you can let me have my fantasy for, for <laughs> a couple more shows. And, and speaking of luck, we, um, so, so we tweeted a few weeks ago, uh, 
Jonathan put out a tweet saying, you know, that we're going to start a podcast and we're talking about these different career paths and ask people to share theirs. And one of the ones that I got such a big kick out of um, was somebody, oh, and forgive me for not looking it up to see his name um, before I did this, um, said that he was thinking about physics and was like flipping through the course catalog uh, and they happened to be listed alphabetically and he flipped the page from physics and their psychology was and it sounded cool too. And I got such a kick out of that because, like, imagine, you know, if we tell people, oh, go and, you know, do great things in your careers. But just so you know, one of the things that might affect your entire career path is the alphabetical order of the departments that you're right. looking at. Yeah, that was one of my favorites, too. I thought that was great. <laughs> um, let's see. There was another. I mean, there, there were a lot of really good um, replies and, and also quite a few people who either – um, did totally different careers for, for, you know, quite a while of time and then went to graduate school. So here mm-hmm. there was one person, you know, undergrad psych major, 14 years working for Tower Records mm-hmm. and then and then started grad school um, mm-hmm. and then and then went in um, uh, academia, I think, for a little while. And then and then now is a data scientist in the private sector. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, definitely a lot of. Yeah, variety in in how Mm -hmm. in people's kind of timeline, certainly. Yeah. So what do you think are like the consequences of students, I mean, of people more generally, thinking that successful people have followed a clear path? I mean, I think one potential thing that it brings up is the importance of every decision. So in other mm-hmm. words, if there is a path, right, there's one path. And if you stray from the path, uh, then you're going to run into trouble. And, and this, this is certainly, you know, I, I when you pick a, uh, if in, it's in academic circles, right, if you pick a major or if you pick a school to go study at for undergrad or grad school or whatever, um, what if you pick the wrong one? Uh, then what? And so I think good luck, good luck. Right. And you and then you've wasted all this time and effort and and you're never going to be happy because you've made the wrong decision. Um, so I think I guess for so one one piece of advice I often give, um, which I've been on the receiving end of. And honestly, in the moment, I've never found it helpful. But then, <laughs> you know, w- when I step back, it is helpful is just thinking about um, there probably for most of us in most situations is not just a single right decision. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, maybe maybe there are exceptions, but a, a lot of times there can be many paths to happiness and our lives might look very different. I mean, maybe, um, who knows, maybe actually I would have been a really happy and successful uh, French horn player and I didn't go that way. And it doesn't mean that uh, this is a wrong path. It's just a different path that I'm, I've been pretty happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, of course, you have to consider decisions and you don't want to just, well, then you can do anything because it doesn't matter. Um, but they're not having a single path hopefully takes off some of that pressure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, I often have this conversation with students where they say something like, oh, I'm worried if I don't get into this class next term, it's going to throw off all my pre-med requirements and then maybe I can't be a doctor. And, you know, and now like their whole future career is resting on the classes that they're taking next term. Um, and it's possible that taking those classes is going to set them up well for the next set of classes they need. And, you know, but, but the idea that the only way for them to get to the place that they're interested in going is through that one path, I think, um, can, be, can be kind of harmful. I mean, that it, that it does put a tremendous amount of pressure um, on, on a decision that, that maybe doesn't need quite that much. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it does, it sort of inflates the importance of good. what yeah, are yeah. probably, you know, what are probably kind of minor decisions. I also wonder about, um, like, the, the the role of hindsight bias. I mean, you know, uh, when people have gotten to a particular place in their career, um, if the stories that we tell about how we got there also are maybe not not exactly the truth, right? Like people mm-hmm. saying, oh... I think I've always known that I was really interested in dot, dot, dot. Um, And so it may be the case that uh, the story of someone knowing what they were going to do, always knowing what they were going to do and then taking a clear path to get there um, might not even really be true in the circumstances where it it looks like it's true, right? Where they're saying, oh, I always knew I wanted to do this and I just worked hard and had a good attitude and got there, Um, that they may be remembering differently. Yeah, totally. Well, there was actually, there was an interesting little discussion. You know, there's a lot of discussion on Twitter about, you know, evaluating, how do you evaluate researchers and and how much do you weigh what art, you know, where their publications appear. And so Mm -hmm. um, there was a quote about uh, some older experienced professors telling the younger professors that, you know, you're never going to get tenure without a paper in nature. Uh, mm-hmm. When they themselves didn't had tenure without a paper in Nature, so there's sort of this right. also, you know, yeah, uh, uh, sometimes often self-serving inflation of of what the of someone's own career or, or experiences. Mm-hmm. And in the in the interest of avoiding being too like career centric here, mm-hmm. I mean, I know these are things that that we think about a lot too, but. Um, some of the stories that people were telling of um, when when we posted this question on Twitter of, uh, you know, what are the things that you did before you got here? Um, even if those paths weren't necessarily the most efficient way to end up in the career that they're in, um, that's not the only thing that matters, right? They may have, like, had a lot of fun and learned a lot and gotten to travel and meet interesting people. And, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm having conversations with students about the direction that their life should take, um, they are often, and I think because they're getting this pressure from their their parents, their families, they're often concerned about, you know, what is the career path? What is the job title? Um, when that's really just one one part of, you know, being a, a whole person. Yeah, I, I think that's super important. Um, so there's a lot of other big topics this brings up, but one is sort of like, probably in any career, but I think especially in ours, I, you know, you hear people, um, I've known people who are, you know, put kind of quote unquote, putting off real life until after graduate school mm-hmm, or until mm-hmm. the next, you know, until I finish this part and, and sort of making, um, you know, choices and sacrifices to not enjoy certain things or whatever, whether it's a relationship or exercise or a hobby or, or whatever. Um, and I, I think that's, that's that's really a topic for another time too because i think that's a big problem but yeah it's part of just like there is more to life and that the experience of going through this can be can have lots of benefits too mm-hmm. yep when you were mentioning because oh, i have to tell one other career thing just because it was such a cool story so back in my horn playing days i would pay attention to you know various french horn players and the um, Chuck Kevalowski was the principal horn player in the Boston Symphony for, for a long time. Um, he started his career, he was a PhD in uh, uh, physics and just kind of played in community orchestras. And uh, at one point, they, they were auditioning for the Boston Symphony. And so he just like started auditioning and then he like <laughs> won the principal job and then did that for 25 years. And I, I remember, I think I must have read an article or 
seen an interview with him. But um, one of the things the Boston Symphony does is they would play at Tanglewood, which is like the big outdoor venue, you know, out in the in the Berkshire Mountains, and people can come sit on the lawn and have a picnic. And so he was, um, while he was getting ready for his audition, he would go on his back deck if it was, you know, sprinkling out and just practice like playing all his music outside. So I thought that was a really, yes, yeah, talk about a non-traditional path to being yeah, a right. principal horn player in a major symphony orchestra. You know, and when he's telling his story, is it, well, what you need to do is start a PhD program in physics. <laughs> right. <and> then, <laughs> uh, wait, I have, a, I have a silly French horn question. Yeah. I hear you saying like horn player with the like implicit assumption that that horn refers to French horn, even though like horn is kind of an umbrella term for lots of different categories. Is that a term that like French horn players are just like, if you say horn, you're definitely not talking about a trumpet? Yeah. So in the the International Horn Society, uh, of which I'm a <laughs> member, uh, has a little statement in the uh, somewhere in their founding documents that that the official name of the instrument should be horn. Uh, in practice, if you are in a classical orchestra and maybe even like a wind ensemble type environment and you say horn, everyone mm -hmm. knows what you mean. But mm -hmm. if you're in a jazz band or you're talking to, to jazz people and you say horn, yeah. then, of course, it could be anything that with a kind of a horn shape, you know, mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. it. So you have to be a little careful. But mm -hmm. but yeah. Context matters. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do have yeah, there's the English horn, for example, is a another horn. But we just I guess we just claimed it because because it's the best. So. <laughs> well, there you have it, gentle listener. <laughs> We have settled it. The French horn is the best horn. Right. We can stop. Now we can be done. <laughs> um, yeah, good. Well, you know, um, Julia, before we get too long here, maybe we should tell people that we have a website for the podcast. We do indeed. Juiceandsqueeze.net. Mm, yep, that's right. So if you go there, you'll see all of our episodes and uh, show notes and a little bit about us. And there's also a contact button where you can click on that. And that will take you to a form to send us email. So if you've got comments or questions or topics you want us to cover, uh, send us a message. And we will try to get back to you, and we will certainly read what you send us. And if you uh, want to uh, uh, – we're interested in doing a, a letters segment. So if you want to send us a letter that you want to have your question discussed on the air – is that a thing you say if it's a podcast? Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a great spot to do that, too. You know, and here we are, kind of, this is our first episode. We're sending this information out into the void. And so it would be great to hear back and know if you're listening and if you're interested in what you might, uh, what you might like to hear about. And that brings up another question, which is, why are we doing a podcast, Julia? Mm. All right. Well, I saw a tweet. We have talked about Twitter a lot on this episode. Uh, that might be a theme. Um, I saw a tweet last year sometime. Uh, by David Robinson. And I don't know if he's the first to say this, but he was the first to put it on my radar. He said, when you've written the same code three times, write a function. When you've given the same in-person advice three times, write a blog post. Um, and there are a number of situations in which I have given the same advice more than three times or had, you know, variations on a, a similar topic um, multiple times. Um, and I realized that when I was, was I'm giving this advice, um, especially to students, I'm giving it to this really like narrow slice of the people who might potentially benefit or I mean, like at least, you know, be interested um, in it. So, right, it's the students who happen to be at Carleton College, who happen to take a class with me, um, 
who happened to have like the nerve and social capital to like set up a meeting and come and talk with me and ask the right questions. Um, and so a podcast seemed like a really nice kind of democratizing way to share information that might be um, of interest to, to more people uh, more widely. So that was one reason for me. The other reason is that I think Jonathan is really cool and smart, and I want to know more about what he thinks about stuff and, you know, have an excuse to talk with him on a regular basis. Oh, pshaw. That's my motivation. Yeah. So what did you think when – so the, the, the history of this was that I, I think you had been thinking about this perhaps ahead, but then I kind of pitched you – I've been thinking about starting a blog. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that, so on my I, own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then I pitched you the podcast idea. And um, and like, what was your reaction when I first brought it up? Because it was it was kind of out of the blue. I think I had not hinted it to you that I had this thought. It was so out of the blue. No, what uh, you emailed me and you said, and we knew of each other a little bit and had met, but hadn't you know didn't know each other well. Um, and you emailed me and said, "Hey, can we Skype? I have this crazy idea to run past you." And I said, "Sure." And then there you were, and you were like, "Let's do a podcast." And I was I was. I was quite shocked. I did not see that coming. Um, but it's it's appealing to me for a couple of reasons. One is that relative to doing a blog to kind of be sharing this stuff with a wider audience, um, uh, a blog feels so much more formal, right? I'm putting things in writing. You can take screenshots of it. It just feels like I would spend endless time editing and stressing about, you know, exactly what words I'm using. Um, and And a podcast just seems like a nice way to kind of have a conversation. It's more. It's more casual. Um, in some ways, more accessible. Uh, and you know, you got a you got a partner in crime, which also makes it appealing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I've enjoyed as a I've been sort of an on again, off again podcast listener over the years. I mean, from I don't know when did they invent podcasts, but I think I kind of <laughs> got on, on on a few of them fairly early on um, for a while. But one thing I've always enjoyed is just kind of that feeling that I get to hang out with people who are talking about interesting stuff uh, and just sort of like be a fly on the wall uh, when people are having a conversation. So, you know, on the one hand, it, it, then I think, well, I don't know how many people are necessarily going to want to listen to me talk about things. But um, but maybe there are a couple of you, which is great. And it'd just be a fun, a fun chance to kind of talk over some of these issues and to get to get a different perspective because I'm, you know, I'm very aware of having my own, you know, my own perspective shaped by my own career and my own life at the moment. And I just, it's good to think outside that, I think, especially, especially when we're giving advice to students and sort of helping other people navigate their own lives, um, you know, whether we like it or not. So I, yeah, I think it's, it's a really good opportunity to have a wider discussion. All right. Well, nice talking with you, Jonathan. And you too, Julia. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.